Welcome back, one and all, to the Maritime History Podcast. Today, we will dive right into episode 28, Unlocking the Pontus Euxinus. Last time, we used some points related to the Greek figure Odysseus to see how the Greeks and Phoenicians evolved in their relationship and colonization of the central Mediterranean. The Greeks, as we've solidly established by now, were a bit more prone to the use of force, which contributed to the growing animosity between Greece and Phoenicia as the years progressed. We also looked at how the Homeric epics made a few mentions of boats and the construction process, and although Odysseus had some divine aid, we have labored under the assumption that the process was the same one used by the other all-too-human Greek mariners. Today, we turn our focus east, not necessarily to Phoenicia, not to Egypt or to the Levant either, those will come again in due time, but today we turn to the Greek activity in the eastern islands, along the coasts of Anatolia, and into the Black Sea. Much of our look at the early Greeks so far has centered on the colonizing activity helmed by settlers and explorers from the island of Euboea in eastern Greece. The two main cities of Euboea, Chalcis and Eretria, were both mentioned in Homer's catalog of ships in the Iliad. So we know that even back in the Mycenaean era, they were centers of maritime activity. That began again quickly with the resurrection of Greece following the Bronze Age collapse, and although the Euboean cities were quick to colonize Magna Graecia and beyond, Chalcis and Eretria became embroiled in the Lelantine War during the very end of the 8th century BCE. Beginning in around 710 BCE, it seems, these two cities came into armed conflict over control of the fertile Lelantine Plain, a region on the island between these two city-states, and, I'm assuming, a region that was crucial to crop growth for the growing cities. There really aren't many historical specifics about this war to speak of, and even those that are around don't have to do with maritime history. Some scholars argue that this war never even happened anyways, but for us, I mention it only because it was the conflict that marked a transition point. The war is supposed to have lasted for several decades, long enough that the Euboean cities exhausted their ability to found colonies abroad. Within the first few decades of the 7th century BCE, the mantle of foremost colonizing power passed to a pair of new city-states in particular, Corinth and Miletus. These two cities are going to be the dual focus of today's episode, but do keep in mind that I'm not ignoring the fact that many other smaller cities were also involved in the growth of Greece. I'm sure that names will come in the mix as they apply to the point at hand, but it does get a bit unwieldy to try and mention everything. That being said then, Corinth and Miletus will be the backbone of our talk, and everything else should 
hopefully fall into place. To continue on with the backbone metaphor, I suppose, I'll start with one of the vertebrae in that backbone, geography. To fully understand everything that will follow, we need to lay out a basic geography. When it comes to any study of the past, one needs to understand the map upon which events unfold to be able to fully grasp the import of those events. Maritime history is no exception, so let's try to place the players in their respective geographic positions. One final caveat here that probably again goes without saying, but it is a little difficult to verbally explain a map without some type of common visual reference that I as the speaker and you as the listener can both consult so that we can get on the same page, so to speak. On this point then, I have provided maps on the website that are generally key to these places and times, but I'm sure you could easily find different maps that would be just as useful in a book from your bookshelf, or even on just a handy old Google image search. Alright then. Corinth was arguably the first of the two cities to rise to prominence, so let's start there. Corinth was the city that embodied the real estate wisdom that I remember my dad repeating on a few occasions. Location, location, location. Given the prime real estate occupied by the city, it's rather surprising that it alone didn't end up as the preeminent Greek polis. Maybe that's giving away a bit too much, though. Corinth was situated right next to the isthmus that connects northern Greece to the Peloponnese, so by virtue of this location, it could exercise a measure of control over the land trade that passed in either direction along the land bridge. Of more interest to us, though, are the two gulfs that lay on either side of the isthmus, the Corinthian Gulf to the west and the Sauronic Gulf to the east. Since these gulfs almost connect, ancient sailors opted to move their cargo, many times even their entire ships, overland across the isthmus, as this would save them time and effort of the sail all the way around the Peloponnese to the south and west or east. Today, the isthmus is cut by a canal. It's 6.4 kilometers long, about four miles or so, and a satellite photo of the area really demonstrates the meaning of the Greek word for isthmus. It literally means a neck of land, and this one that we're talking about was controlled by Corinth. In a decided effort on my part to not get embroiled in the minutiae of Greece's political development and all the other aspects of Greek history as they go, it's useful to say here that as Corinth grew in power and moved into its piece of the Age of Tyranny in Greece, the Corinthian tyrant Periander built a portage road across the isthmus. He did actually try to cut a canal at first, but that attempt proved unsuccessful, so he opted to instead build a portage road. The date of construction for this diolkos it was called, isn't specifically known. It seems to have been sometime in the 7th century BCE, 
but the iteration overseen by Periander may also have been built on top of a pre-existing path that may have been in use for centuries. So maybe even the Mycenaeans made use of this ship transport track across the Isthmus. As it came to be used by the classical Corinthians, though, this diolkos was essentially a limestone path with parallel grooves. The archaeological studies and theories right now center around the idea that triremes were probably too large to have been transported on a regular basis, although the size of the Diolkos road indicates that they could have been moved if it was necessary. It just would have been a large undertaking. More feasibly, though, it seems that smaller boats and the cargoes of larger ships were transported across the isthmus on some sort of wheeled device that ran in the grooves set into the Diolkos itself, a proto-railway of sorts, then. In my mind, it conjures images of a handcar chase in some old black-and-white movie, where the hero is stuck on a handcar, pumping furiously at the handle to hopefully outrun the oncoming train or something like that. Hopefully my random mental image associations didn't throw us off track, though, and now that I say off track, I in no way meant that as a pun either, so let's just move on. Basically then, Corinth was situated at the center of the east-west maritime trade route that bisected a large part of Greece proper. But since it also sat in the main way of the north-south land trade route, it could control a large portion of trade going in all directions. With the location of Corinth laid out here, then, let's get a bit of history for the city, and then we'll get back to geography to fill in the other relevant pieces. Given its geographical location, Corinth was important back even for the Mycenaeans. Early on in archaic Greece, it had become a wealthy city. It didn't get heavily into the colonization scene until the aristocratic family of the Bacchiads took control of the city and moved it out of the era of kingship. Fairly quickly after this transition, Corinth began to colonize. Corsera was an early colony of Corinth, settled somewhere around 733 BCE, about a decade after the Bacchiadae took power. Corsera became a strong naval power in its own right, and situated on the modern island of Corfu, it helped Corinth retain a strong measure of control over the western approaches to the Gulf of Corinth and the waters into Greece and the Adriatic Sea. Other colonies in this region settled around 700 BCE showed the genius of Corinth as a colonizing city, she tended to select sites of strategic importance and controlled export running from the colonies into Greece, including the export of silver, ship timber, and agricultural produce. Corinth also founded the colony of Syracuse on the eastern side of Sicily, and the site of the best harbor on that side of the island, at least according to a few classical historians. Syracuse also evolved into a strong city-state of its own, as Greek city-states did tend to become independent of their metropolis, even though many customs of the metropolis were baked into the original structure 
and organization of the colony as it was originally settled. To boil the complexities down to the important point here, historian N.G.L. Hammond stated that, quote, the keystone of Greek commerce was the Isthmus of Corinth. From 725 to 550, Corinth had an absolute predominance in the trade of the West. It was at Corinth that the traffic from the Aegean Sea and the Black Sea, converging on the Corinthian Gulf, met at the great market of Corinth to be exchanged and distributed by land and by sea. Having stated the key role that Corinth played in Greece's maritime history here, I do want to say that the maritime technology contributions of Corinth are definitely something that we're going to get into as well. This includes the introduction, development, and the specific traits of the trireme, but I think that we'll have to get into those in a separate episode, possibly the next one, but I may gradually work our way up to it and then devote an entire long episode to the trireme. That topic is a bit complicated, so uh, I think it would be good just to focus on that in one episode here in the future. Today, I think we need to now shift to one origin of the traffic that Hammond mentioned in that quote, the Black Sea. Geography, again, will be important here, so let's go ahead and start with that. In previous episodes, we've really focused on the areas to the west of Greece proper, places like the island of Sicily, the Tyrrhenian Sea, Carthage, even beyond that, out to Cadiz and the Pillars of Heracles. As we just outlined today, Corinth rose up to fill the colonizing void left when the Euboean cities fell off the pace. But Corinth was just one of the powers that filled that void. To the east of Greece proper is another region, one that, like Corinth, was also important back in the Mycenaean days. The region that I'm talking about here is, of course, Ionia, and the city in question, at least to start with, is the southernmost of the Ionian Greek cities, Miletus. Herodotus called Miletus the Jewel of Ionia, and beyond her beauty, let's now talk a bit about her colonizing industry and intrepidness. If you recall some of our talk about the Mycenaean Age and the dynamics at play in the time period that could possibly be the basis for some of the Iliad's Trojan War descriptions, then you'll no doubt remember that the Mycenaeans spent a fair amount of time executing seaborne raids on the coastal cities of western Anatolia. Back in that time frame, some of them were independent, and some of these cities were under Hittite control. But even the independent ones were basically vassals to the Hittite Empire at the height of its power. Fast forward now to the 8th and 7th centuries BCE, and the colonizing influence of Greece has exercised its influence on the coast of Ionia, beginning back all the way near 1000 BCE even. Miletus was, as we said, the southernmost of the Ionian cities, there were 12 cities that formed the Ionian League in later years, as it was also told to us by Herodotus. Regardless, 
I think this quote from the historian Robin Lane Fox is an apt nutshell summary of the situation as it likely developed. He says, quote, in my view, Ionia and the Eastern Greeks in the 8th to 6th centuries would have made mainland Greece seem decidedly drab and unsophisticated. His reasoning for this claim is possibly even more interesting. In his view, the Ionian Greeks were more sophisticated because they had seen more of the world. The driving force behind their having seen more of the world was their geographical and societal situation, being much different from the situation of the Attic Greeks, even the Baeotian Greeks. Miletus, to get to our subject city today, was a decidedly Aegean city, at least in terms of the culture that suffused the city and had instigated the settlement and structure of Ionian Greek Miletus. This is no different than the hundreds of other Greek colonies strung along every imaginable coast with which the Greeks came into contact. But each colony had to then mature within the unique environment where it had been planted, and Miletus was in a unique position indeed. In centuries previous, the scope and strength of the Hittite Empire had reached even to the shores of Anatolia, so the raiding Mycenaeans had had to operate in the gaps of Hittite control. Obviously, then, the Mycenaeans didn't get to colonize any settlements on the Anatolian coast, at least none that we could comfortably call a colony in the later sense of the word. With the fall of the Hittite Empire, though, the Greek city-states of the Archaic Age seized the opportunity to heavily colonize the coasts of Anatolia, Miletus being only one among many of the colonies that would be planted there. Now, although the city and the climate may have been beautiful enough to earn the city's jewel description from Herodotus, the geographical reality is that it was a coastal city in a region that was mountainous and left it little room for agriculture. Add on to that the reality that the Hittites had fallen apart but that the Lydians and other competing smaller groups were always a land-based threat from the east, well, the Milesians quickly found themselves in a situation where the best hope of their survival had to come from without, rather than from the land within the coastline. The real years of pressure from Lydia didn't begin until around 700 BCE, and in the decades following. So we know that external pressure wasn't the original impetus for the colonizing activities of Miletus. The historian Eusebius references an early Milesian colony at Sinope, as early as 756 BCE. And although that date is disputed, archaeological evidence indicates the presence of at least a small Greek trading post in this location at a date this far back. Senape is on the northern edge of the Turkish coast of the Black Sea, so quite a long haul from Miletus all the way up into the Black Sea. Based on the more agreed-upon dates of the colonies we'll now get into, the 756 date is a bit early, but it suggests that beginning in the early part of the 8th century BCE, 
The Greek colonists, especially from Ionia, knew something of the tribes and customs of the coastlands of the Black Sea and its approaches. The Homeric poems actually contain indications that the Greeks of Homer's day were somewhat acquainted with the imprecise details of the Black Sea's southern shore and the peoples who populated that region. With the pressure that increased as the Lydians and Anatolian tribes pushed west to the coast, the Milesians of the early 7th century BCE found more of a reason to make their colonizing ventures a bigger priority. All of the archaeological evidence, as well as the dates passed down to us from classical historians, it all largely agrees that in the 7th century, the Milesians effectively converted the Black Sea into a lake over which they exercised almost total control. As we now get into the geography of the Black Sea region and the various settlements founded there, I should also note that the shifting political and social dynamics that swept across Greece in the 7th and 6th centuries BCE also played a role in the drive to colonize new regions. Miletus in particular found itself in a situation similar to the one we've seen in previous episodes. The good land had become concentrated in a small set of hands, but the mercantile class had begun to grow thanks to the ubiquity of trade and the numerous outlets for colonization. Miletus then was in prime position to take advantage of the chance. The fine details here are a bit too far off our charted course again, though, so let's now go ahead and enter uncharted waters, at least for our podcast, that is. For both Greeks coming from mainland Greece, Corinthian sailors perhaps, but also for Ionian Greeks coming from further south, from along the coasts of Asia Minor, Gaining access to the Black Sea was not so simple as just sailing on in. The first obstacle that had to be overcome was known as the Hellespont. Today it's commonly known as the Dardanelles, but the Greek name for this narrow strait derived from, surprise surprise, a Greek myth. Supposedly the daughter of Athamas and Nephili, a girl named Hella, died by falling off a flying golden ram and landing in the Hellespont, which was then named the Sea of Hella in her honor. Now, a brief parenthetical here. Hella was riding on the golden ram with her twin brother Phrixus, who managed to hold on and ride the ram all the way to Colchis, where the fleece of said ram was placed in a consecrated grove guarded by a dragon. A group of guys you may know as the Argonauts later sailed the Argo into the Black Sea for the first time in mythical Greek history. And, well, the rest is uh, myth, I guess, not history. I went into detail on the Argonaut myth in our first member episode, since the myth derived from a time before the Trojan War myth of the Iliad. The older origin of the Argo myth is actually one big reason why we know that the early Archaic Greeks must have had some knowledge of the Black Sea, though the Mycenaeans seem to have had contact with the region only by virtue of land-based trade. 
it's somewhat doubtful whether they had sailed into the Black Sea before the Bronze Age collapse. It's certainly possible, though. We just don't have hard evidence to back up such a claim yet. Okay, after that aside about the Hellespont, I suppose you'd be interested in some specifics about this strait of water. At present, it is 38 miles, or 61 kilometers long, and it's pretty narrow, ranging from three-quarters of a mile to 3.7 miles wide, or about 1.2 to 6 kilometers. Basically, it's quite long and quite narrow, almost like a river in that sense, and for sailors entering from the Aegean, they were immediately confronted by rocky waters, buffeted by currents surging down from the northeast, and for nine months of the year, there was the added complication of a strong northeasterly wind. It was hard enough, actually, to reach the mouth of the Hellespont from across the Aegean at certain times of the year, but as you can imagine, the tallest task was to navigate up the narrow strait in the face of winds and currents. Few obstacles can long stand in the way of intrepid and resourceful sailors, though, and in time, presumably also with the aid of innovations in maritime technology, Greek sailors unlocked the door to the north. In due time, colonies were founded along the shores of the Hellespont, though many of these didn't begin until 650 BCE or thereafter. The earliest Milesian colony in the Hellespont was settled earlier, around 700 BCE, at the best harbor on the Asiatic side of the Narrow Strait, a city that was known as Abydos. The Milesians would make a trend of selecting ideal colony sites, reminiscent in that regard of Tyre. Colonies along the shores of the Hellespont were just the start, because the long narrow strait was but the gateway to a sea, albeit a small sea. Today it's called the Sea of Marmara, but the Greeks had a non-mythical inspired name for it. They called it the Propontis, meaning simply, before the Pontus. The Pontus they had in mind with this name was the headlining act, so the Propontus is akin to an opening act at a concert, and in the geographic sense, it's like an antechamber to the larger sea that we will get to in just a bit. Now, although I called the Propontus a small sea, it was still 175 miles long and about 40 miles wide at its widest spot. It seems that this sea was the site of colonies around the same time that Hellespont was, not surprising really, given their proximity and all. Again, as with the Hellespont, the southern shore of the Propontis was the preferable shore as far as colonial settlements went. The main colony in the Propontis was the Milesian settlement at Akizakis. At least, it grew to become the main settlement there, thanks again to its forward-looking location and the two harbors that graced the vicinity of the main settlement. Given the middle ground that the Propontis as a whole occupied, it should come as no surprise that the city there, with the most useful harbors, would go on to become the main port of call 
for ships traveling from the Aegean to the Black Sea, or vice versa. Kizikis is another colony in the region that sees debate about when exactly it was founded. Eusebius includes the dates both 756 and 679 BCE, and although the latter date seems to be when the continuing colony was founded, presence there may date back to the former date, in a muted, smaller form, anyway. Kizikis could boast of twin harbors, one lay on each side of the city itself, and they were connected by a canal that facilitated access to each. This alone, in addition to the central location, made Kizikis, and by extension Miletus, a main player in the Greek expansion to the northeast. Another source of profit and importance came from the presence of the tunny fish around the region, a resource that the Milesians took full advantage of in their quest to climb the ladder of importance in the Greek world. The tunny fish will swim their way into the history of other Greek port cities soon, but as concerns Miletus and Kizikis, the fish found itself depicted on some of the early Greek coinage there. Coinage caught on in Lydia and in the Ionian Greek cities a little before 600 BCE, a few decades before it grew popular in mainland Greece. In Kizikis specifically, the city badge as it appeared on the city's minted coins contained one steady constant, the depiction of a tunny fish near the bottom of one side of the coin. Over the decades, the central image would change constantly, from a rudimentary person, to a satyr, to the head of different men, then to various animals, including a bull. The tunny fish was always included, though, and I'll post a few example images of coins at various periods of the city's history to help illustrate the point here. Basically, though, the profits that the city raked in thanks to their harvesting of the tunny fish became a physical part of their currency, and the gold stater of Kizikis, bearing the tunny fish of the Propontis and the Black Sea, would quickly become a staple currency of the Eastern Greek world. The topic of coinage can actually help us transition out of the Propontis onto the next geographical feature, the Bosporus. First, to describe the Bosporus. Essentially, this strait is similar to the Hellespont, though only about half as long. It's about 31 kilometers in length, though it is slightly wider than the Hellespont on average. Even though the Bosphorus is wider and shorter than its southern twin, the winds and currents emanating from the Black Sea make it another pain for sailors seeking to travel north. Despite this, the Greeks who had already unlocked the Hellespont were in no wise deterred by the winds and currents of the Bosphorus. They quickly figured out that the winds blowing down from the north in the summer would tend to subside at night which then allowed the Greek ships to ride the nightly breeze blowing up the two straits that flanked the Propontis. When they needed to return south again to the Aegean, 
The northerly winds of the daytime propelled them all the way back down. Shifting to that topic of coinage quickly, I ought to mention that migrating tunny fish in the region of the Bosporus were again a draw. This surely spurred on the explorers and colonists, as the fish were a solid source of profit for Greek fishermen, but also a steady source of food for colonies established along the shores of the area. Dolphins also actually played a role in Greek mythology, and since they were also prevalent in this area, dolphins found a place on the coinage of the two main cities that would develop on the shores of the Bosporus. On the southeastern side, the city of Chalcedon depicted a dolphin and an ear of corn on its coins. The more famous of the two cities, Byzantium, on the northwestern shore, depicted a dolphin and a cow. The cow symbol actually held a lot of meaning. It alluded to the wanderings of Io, the mythical daughter of Inches and priestess of Hera at Argos, who was transformed into a cow by Zeus so that she could escape Hera's jealousy. It was Io's crossing of the strait that gave the Bosporus its name. The word Bosporus in Greek means cow's ford. To wrap up a brief mention of the Bosporus here now, it seems that Chalcedon was founded around 685 BCE by colonists from Megara. Byzantium, though, was founded later, sometime around 660 BCE, and it would of course go on to become a central player in much of later history. For some unknown reason, the Milesian sailors chose to bypass the site that would become known as Istanbul, which was a little bit strange, since this area possessed one of the best harbors, which itself has become known as the Golden Horn. The town of Megara would instead take advantage of this site by founding the colony there around 660. It seems that Megara only decided to get in on the colonizing act in the Bosporus because her neighbor back in Greece, which was Corinth, had started to encroach on Megara's territory. Megara, you see, was located in the northern part of the Isthmus of Corinth, so when Corinth began to grow in power around 700 BCE, Megara decided to focus her attentions elsewhere, and the Bosporus obviously was one of the areas ripe for new ventures. Up to this point then today, we've laid out the Hellespont, the Propontis, and now the Bosporus. The Milesian sailors and colonists were typically at the forefront of settling these new regions, and although the tunny fish were useful and beneficial, we've not yet witnessed too much that would indicate why the Milesians became as powerful as they did. I won't drag it out and dangle the main attraction in front of you, though. That's just cruel. As I'm sure you've already deduced, the main Pontus contemplated within the name of the Propontus is what all the Greek explorations sought after as the end goal. As we've said, the early Greeks had knowledge of the wealth to be had in the northeastern regions, thanks to the land-based contacts and rumors that had no doubt spread for many centuries. 
The ancient peoples were in no wise ignorant of distant lands, as we tend to assume that they were. The land around the Black Sea was awash in grain, while the waters of the Black Sea were full of the fish that migrated south on an annual basis. As we've laid out now, the Greek sailors managed to unlock the straits that gave them access to the Black Sea, so let's now focus in on this body of water that became a new field for Greek colonization efforts. The name by which the Greeks called this sea is an item of interest right off the bat here. We, of course, know it as the Black Sea, and although the Greeks came to know the sea by the term that is in our episode title today, Pontus Euxinus, the evolution of the Greek name is the subject of debate. Pontus Euxinus means something akin to hospitable sea, or sea friendly to travelers. Given that the sea is notoriously difficult to navigate, not to mention the difficult approaches that we've just laid out, the name that carries the idea of hospitable doesn't make any sense at all. But the Greeks were quite fond of the amusing euphemism and play on words, as we've seen already with the Greek words that may underlie the name of the central hill of Carthage. Based on their wittiness, then, the theory is that the word for hospitable, euxinos, was just a euphemism for the word axinos, which meant the polar opposite, inhospitable, or dangerous waters. The other possible and logical theory is that the name given the sea by the Greeks who arrived there was a corruption of some local tribe's name for the sea, a word that could have signified dark or north. This theory does mesh well with the name that remains affixed to the sea today, but it's tough to say for sure how the Greeks initially came to call the sea Pontus Euxinus. Beyond the name by which they knew this body of water, the main headline of the Greek story here was that there was profit to be reaped. The currents that ran into the sea as the Greeks would have entered the southwest corner, those currents flowed east, along the southern shore of the sea. As the earliest Greeks to enter probably followed these currents, they discovered the northern reaches of Asia Minor to be a land well-watered, fertile, and ultimately a prime location from which to harvest various natural resources. As the Greeks have tended to do in our story thus far, they chose coastal sites for their colonies. The earliest colonies in the Black Sea were distributed along the southern shore, mainly. The hinterlands south of this shoreline was populated by various tribes, who seemingly did not hesitate to trade for the wine and olive oil that the Greek traders brought north from the Aegean. The Greeks, however, were more focused on the abundant grain and the varied fruits and nuts that thrived in some of the river valleys near the coastal plains. Since many Greek ships traveling north did so with loads of Greek pottery, wine, oil, and other things, I'm sure, they could trade their loads with the locals, for a bunch of grain and fish, so many times the ships that returned south didn't have to worry about doing so with ballast. The weight of grain and fish did the trick just fine. 
This is one of those practical facts that only a sailor would generally worry about, but from a maritime history point of view, this fact proves the point that they had worked out quite well the trade and the practical nature of their trade with the Black Sea region. Grain and other foodstuffs are an essential resource for colonizers far from home, too, but the Greeks also took advantage of the thick forests that blanketed the Pontic Alps and the Caucasus Mountains, not to mention the iron mining that also took place in the mountains, including the Carpathians. This all-around wealth of resources quickly set off a race of colonization among the Black Sea shores. As I may have mentioned already today, the colonists sent out by Miletus found the most success here in the north, and Miletus by extension solidified her place as the first great Ionian city. Her strongest colony in the Black Sea was called Sinope, it occupied a promontory in the center of the sea's southern coast, making Sinope a central anchor for trade there. This central location was actually amplified by the fact that it was also the spot with the shortest distance to the opposite northern shore of the Black Sea. Once again, then, we find that in the colonizing game, location is king. Sinope is another colony where the date of the founding is subject to dispute. Eusebius again lists two dates, 756 and 631. While there may have been a rudimentary trading post at this location in 756, it wasn't until closer to the 631 date that the colony began to flower into the powerful city that controlled Black Sea trade. Regardless, her location and the fact that she possessed dual deep-water harbors made her indispensable to Greek trade on the Euxine Sea. Sinope was far from the only colony established in the Black Sea, and Miletus was far from the only metropolis to set up colonies there. The numbers vary, of course, but many historians place the number of Black Sea colonies, including the approach regions, at well over 100. It would take far too long to list them, even in a cursory manner, so I'll just quote Lincoln Payne on the main colonies of Miletus, many of which were the backbone of trade in this entire region. He writes, quote, the Milesians established 17 Black Sea colonies that became important centers of trade in their own right. Olbia on the mainland near Barazon was close to Central Europe. The harbor at Theodosia, modern-day Feodosia, Ukraine, was said to have room for a hundred ships, and Pantacapaeum was on the Sea of Azov, near the Crimean granaries, that accounted for the bulk of Milesian trade with Greece, especially Athens, for 300 years. Now, even though we haven't traced the Black Sea colonies in any chronological sense today, the takeaway point for me in all of this has been the central role of Miletus in establishing the Greek presence in the region, their role in unlocking the door. Will Durant pulled no punches when he said that Milesian wealth and luxury became scandalous in the ancient world, 
He even equated the Milesian merchants to the Medici, calling the colonizing and rise of the northeastern Greek world, quote, an Ionian renaissance. You know what, actually? I found this paragraph from his book, The Life of Greece, to be particularly insightful, though perhaps a bit dramatic, so I'll go ahead and read it for us here. He writes, It was in this stimulating environment that Greece first developed two of its most characteristic gifts to the world, science and philosophy. The crossroads of trade are the meeting place of ideas, the attrition ground of rival customs and beliefs. Diversities beget conflict, comparison, thought. Superstitions cancel one another, and reason begins. Here in Miletus, as later in Athens, were men of a hundred scattered states. Mentally active through competitive commerce, and freed from the bondage of tradition by long absences from their native altars and homes. Milesians themselves traveled to distant cities and had their eyes opened by the civilizations of Lydia, Babylonia, Phoenicia, and Egypt. In this way, among others, Egyptian geometry and Babylonian astronomy entered the Greek mind. Trade and mathematics, foreign commerce and geography, navigation and astronomy developed hand in hand. He even goes on to connect that melting pot picture of Miletus with the rise of Greek rational thought and political freedom, but I'm not going to chase that rabbit any further for now. The idea of Greek government and the changes it underwent in the 7th, 6th, and later centuries BCE does connect back to Miletus in one final way, though. It's the one that I want to wrap up with today. The particularities of the evolution of government in Miletus isn't my aim. Rather, the specific peculiarity in the method of governance during one period of the city's history. Like most cities around the Greek world in the 7th century, Miletus had fallen under the sway of tyrants. The final two tyrants in Miletus were named Thoas and Damasener, but the approach to ruling by the magistrates who overthrew them, well, it was unique, to say the least. The group of magistrates who ruled around the years 600 BCE were known as the Ainautai, from the Greek words for always or perpetual, and the words for sailors. So, in English, a common name for their group is the Perpetual Sailors. I'll let Plutarch's writing tell the story, as it has come down to us, though. He wrote the following in his essays on morals. Who are the Perpetual Sailors among the Milesians? When the despots associated with Thoas and Damasener had been overthrown, two political parties came into control of the city, one of which was called Plutus, the other Chiromaca. When, accordingly, the men of influence gained the upper hand and brought matter into the control of their party, they used to deliberate about the matters of the greatest importance by embarking in their ships and putting out to a considerable distance from land. But when they had come to a final decision, they sailed back. 
and because of this they acquired the appellation of perpetual sailors. This is an interesting method, to steer the ship of state by sending the rulers out to sea until they've agreed on a course of decision. Interesting if it is true, that is. Many scholars have cautioned that Plutarch's words here should not be taken literally, that the term Ainautai and the description of rulers putting out to sea to conduct state business, that these were merely an etymological or allegorical invention of Plutarch to be used in place of a word that had been lost by even his time. This may be so, but proof is nigh on impossible, our ever-present theme here, it seems. It's fine for these scholars to shun the literal interpretation, but the alternative theories that have been proposed are really just guesses in the alternative. Some think that he meant to describe a form of sea police, or maybe a group of officials in charge of a fleet, or finally, maybe that he meant the term perpetual sailors merely as a nickname for the merchant aristocrats that had seized the government of Miletus. I wish that I could help shed more light on the issue, but alas, I don't believe I can. There are three examples of the term being found in archaeological contexts in Greece, but even these are not much aid to the cause today. All three examples come in the form of inscriptions on stone found on the island of Euboea. The first one, however, has been so badly damaged that only the word Ainautai and a list of names remain. The second inscription isn't too helpful in the cause of determining who or what the perpetual sailors were, what they did functionally. This second example merely records that they dedicated a herm in the 5th century BCE. And a herm here is a statue with a sculpted head on top of a square pillar-like base section. The third and final example is the most helpful of the three, although it still leaves much to be desired. It contains an extensive portion of the original inscription, which is another dedication account, but the stone is broken vertically down the center, so half of each line is gone. This obviously greatly reduces the helpful context of what does remain. What we can pull from the remaining portion is that in the 3rd century BCE, whoever wrote the text described the Ainautai as a corporation. They were also apparently related to some degree with the cult of Apollo in Chalcis, as the inscription describes them rewarding a benefactor with a laurel crown and placing a stella in a temple. Beyond this, we really can't deduce anything further, so we're left with just Plutarch's intriguing description, which it seems most scholars tend to discount, despite the unique maritime flair that it does lend to the issues of governing methods in Greek history. I think that's the last that I will say about Miletus today, at least in a substantive sense. At the outset today, we were introduced to Corinth, and then Miletus, with its push into the Black Sea region, has hogged the bulk of the episode, it turns out. 
So to close, and set the stage for next time, let's briefly shift back to Corinth. We saw that Periander was responsible for the attempt to build a canal across the isthmus, but that he ended up building the Diolkos instead. Periander was the son of a tyrant named Sipsilus, the man who actually seized the government of Corinth in the first place from the aristocratic family of the Bacchiadae in 655 BCE. The wave of tyranny that swept across Greece in the 7th century had a marked impact on maritime matters, and with this final meandering thought that I'm about to lay out, we will get to the maritime connection. Before the tyrants took over in many cities, the various aristocracies that controlled the government were oftentimes made up of larger groups of leaders, the Bacchiadae numbered in the several hundred, for example. The different merits of each structure of government aside, it's a fact of history that the larger aristocracies fell victim to the trend of competitive luxury, in the following sense, anyway. This was an era of mass colonization by many Greek city-states, so with the increase in trade both into and out of cities like Corinth, the aristocrats were quick to line their pockets. They were oftentimes the largest financial backers of the colonizing and trading ventures, actually. The fallout from this profit on their part was that more items of luxury and higher quality entered into the Greek economy. The follow-on fallout is, you guessed it, new levels of luxury and display became highly divisive among the aristocracy. With time, the aristocracy's focus on opulence and finery led to the rise of tyrants, since a revolution in military tactics afforded the common people the option to unite behind a popular tyrant and take up arms against the aristocrats and their military. It's a bit tempting to make some equivalence to the state of our world in present times, but I'm going to resist doing so. I suppose in making this comment, I have done so on a somewhat vague level, and you can fill in the rest on your own. Back to Greek times, though. This is what happened in Corinth when Sipsilus took power, and I'll lay out a few more connecting dots here to get to the final point. When tyrants took power, many of them enacted laws to limit competitive luxury in society. As Robin Lane Fox puts it quite insightfully, quote, tyrants helped to stop spiraling ambition and faction by an ultimate act of ambitious faction, their own coup. The neat thing about a tyrant seizing power and then banning displays of competitive luxury, neat in his own mind at least, I guess, the neat thing for him was that he now could afford to do just about anything that he wanted to with the resources of the city-state in his control. After Periander took over the tyranny from his father, he put those funds to good use. Of course, the ancient sources don't agree on the fact that Periander was a good ruler. He is sometimes renowned for his cruelty, 
but he is often ranked among the seven sages of Greece. Anyway, part of the funds were put to use in building the Diolkos across the Isthmus. But Periander also oversaw the construction of the earliest temples in Corinth that were built on a truly impressive scale, their style being partially borrowed from the Egyptian temples, and the connections between Greece and Egypt are something that we will get into in the next episode. This is the point that I've been ramping up to, though. With the concentration of the resources of the wealthy city-state of Corinth in a smaller set of hands, the conditions were ripe for the refinement and mass introduction of the trireme into Greece as a whole. Thucydides is the famous source for the claim that the first triremes ever built in Hellas were laid down in Corinth, as he wrote it. So in the coming episodes, as we continue to follow Greek expansion and increasing tension with their neighbors, we'll begin to work in the evolution and refinement of the trireme. The early history of the trireme is a bit murky, I'm afraid, so we'll have to get closer to the Battle of Salamis to really dedicate an entire episode to the mechanics and specifics of the trireme, but we will get there in due time, and we'll work in some of the murky early history as we go. That is a wrap on my substantive material for today. I'm glad that we're finally embarking upon new waters in our look at maritime history. As I wrap up for today, then, let me do my traditional shout-outs to the new members and iTunes reviews since we last spoke. We have three new crew members to welcome aboard, and I'm very grateful to each of the three of you for your support of the podcast and for lending your hand in the matter of keeping the ship afloat on this vast digital sea. Welcome then to Christoph, Daniel, and David. And thanks again for your support to our new members and to our continuing members. Also, we do have a new five-star review on iTunes from listener Ballastric, all the way from Terra Australis, the land down under. Thanks so much for that review. And if any of you could take a few minutes to add your review to iTunes, that would be huge in terms of pushing us past the 100 review mark. We're getting somewhat close. On the matter of the state of the podcast here, things are beginning to look up. The winter weather of Minnesota, which this is the first full winter I've spent in Minnesota, it laid me low for about two weeks in December. I could potentially have recorded, I suppose, but I don't think that you would have liked the sounds that came out of my throat. I'm feeling much better now, though, and, uh, well, let me lay it out in a minute here. After the illness, I did a bit of traveling over the holidays, which put a crimp in things yet further. But over my illness and the last weeks here in January, I've been able to build up a decent research outline that will allow me to get episodes out with relative regularity in the coming months. In the upcoming episodes, I plan to look at Greek maritime relations with Egypt, the Red Sea, and related matters in that region, along with the earliest naval battles in the central Mediterranean and the evolution of the trireme, as I said. Then, 
stories of exploration from this time frame will be another focus. And from there, we will connect our look at the Trireme to the battles of the Peloponnesian War and beyond. Then, on top of all that, we have a few famous shipwrecks from this time frame to discuss. Shipwrecks like the Kyrenia ship, which has been the subject of much archaeological work, and I'm really looking forward to our look at that shipwreck in particular. Then we also have the Magan Mechail ship, which was discovered off the coast of Israel. And then there's actually a more recent shipwreck from the Roman period that was discovered in the same region, uh, discovered in the summer of 2016. So I'll be looking to see if there's any information of substance out there for that archaeological work yet. We're really now getting into the period of history where more shipwrecks have been discovered, so we're actually going to have to narrow down our talk to those that have been the most researched, so I'm able to access the information, but also those that will be of most usefulness if we ever want to get anywhere with the podcast's main narrative into the future and other topics. Anyway... Those are my thoughts at present and the direction that I plan to take us in the near future. If you have any input about a topic that I could work in there, feel free to get in touch, and I hope that you all will stay aboard for the ride. Thank you for remaining aboard today, and with that, I'll let you go your way until we meet again. Until then, thanks for listening to the Maritime History Podcast. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. If you like what you've heard, please visit the website for more info, helpful maps and images, plus membership options. Also, please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes. Reviews are the lifeblood of podcasts and help us keep near the top of the charts where other people are more likely to find us and catch the maritime history bug. Oh, and if your plans for today potentially include shopping on Amazon, take 15 extra seconds to visit the podcast website, scroll to the bottom of any page, and just click on the Amazon orange banner. That will take you to Amazon's homepage, where you can shop like normal, but support the podcast by doing so. Nothing changes for you, but we will get a small percentage of every purchase you make on Amazon through that link. It's a simple, free way to support maritime history in podcast form. Thank you so much, everyone. It makes a huge difference to independent podcast producers like me. I hope you'll join me next time, and every time thereafter, as we progress through the stories of maritime history here on the Maritime History Podcast.